All right, and welcome everyone. So this is episode two. We really appreciated all the people we saw last week uh, for our first episode. It went off, went off great, I thought. We had a lot of good compliments come in, which is always nice to know that people really kind of liked what we were doing and uh, that it was a good program. So I think we're on a good format, but uh, there's always chances to improve, and we're certainly always looking forward to some kind of uh, ideas that you may have. Um, at the end of this, when we do close this down, there will be an opportunity. There should be a survey that comes to you. Um, it's a little three-question survey. If you'd be kind enough to fill that out, that'd be great. Now, at this point, our first half of this program is going to be general questions. So if you have any questions, feel free to start submitting those on the Q&A box. I did open up the ability to put those anonymously in case you don't want to have your name there. But if you don't mind, go ahead and put it in there. And also, if you fill out where you're from, because it's kind of interesting to see where people come from to, um, to join this. So I'm waiting for questions but I can still talk if there's nothing else or Lori can chime in if she has any questions. How did you think the program went last week, Lori? Oh, I think it went great. My question to everybody is how's the flow in the background? <laughs> <laughs> For those that don't live in Illinois, that's not what Geneva, Illinois. Is. <laughs> no, it does not. We did. I did have some post questions come in after the meeting, and I'm always welcome any questions that you want to send. I know the email comes out. It has my direct email address um, for this account on it. Feel free to use it and send me a question. I received a question about the PSA um, talk that I gave last week, and they were asking, where do you get the ISO PSA done? And the only place I'm aware of that does it is the Cleveland Clinic, but they do have uh, the ability to they FedEx it over there. So you can set up an account with them to have it done for your office. I uh, I still agree. I think this may be one of the, the big game changers in, in decreasing some unnecessary biopsies. And we're waiting for some questions, folks. Don't be shy. Anything you want to ask? If it's a year dynamics question, we'll do that after our year dynamics discussion. Um, if we don't get any questions, I have no problem with starting the urodynamics early, but um, we're here to answer general questions just in case you have some. Not too much new and exciting. I saw some stuff coming through on um, the SUNA EuroConnect about BCG shortages. I thought that might be a good subject to touch on in the future. Have you had much of an issue, Lori? Oh, yeah. So... We have an allocation, um, our pharmacy and our office. So our pharmacy mixes it. Our office actually, um, we order it as well. So we've been okay so far, but the problem is, is that through Northwestern, we have other Northwestern regions that are not getting as much and they're sending their patients to us. And how do you deny a patient within your corporation, yeah. BCG, you know, but we have to kind of keep it for our own patients. And that's the hard part about it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree that it, it's an issue. So I think it'd be another, another time to kind of revisit that. I'm got a speaker in mind 
um, that we'll use utilize down the line because we did look at that subject once before. Uh, speaking of, of which, we're trying to set up our topics for the going forward. And next week, we are going to have Andrea Strong, the DNP, and she's going to be talking about telephone triage. So I think that's kind of an interesting um, thing to, to discuss, you know, what, uh, how do you handle calls and some of the legalities behind who's answering them and what you can say and how you should document, et cetera. So I'm looking forward to that. So make sure you tune in next week for that. And again, anybody in the audience has a question, I'm, we'll be glad to answer them. If not, I'm perfectly happy to move on to your dynamics. Okay, I'm going to take that as a let's do your dynamics. Okay. So go ahead, Lori, right. take it away. <laughs> Hold on, I'm going to share my screen now. Can you search? Can you see my screen, Vic? Yep. Okay. So um, on the left is kind of a picture of your dynamic study or a your dynamic machine, but there's so many varieties of it. On the right are some sensors, um, but we're gonna go ahead and just start. So the definition of a your dynamic study is the definition of a your dynamic study is um, documentation of the factors involved with filling, storage, transportation, and evacuation of your. It refers to a group of diagnostic procedures performed to evaluate voiding disorders of the lower urinary tract, which is the bladder, sphincters, and urethra. So the urodynamic tests are used to measure nerve and muscle function, pressure around and in the bladder, flow rates, and other factors. So symptoms that, re that may require a urodynamic study. <clears throat> excuse me, any type of, <clears throat> excuse me, any type of urine leakage or incontinence, sudden urges and overwhelming urges to urinate and frequent urination, including overactive bladder, problems starting urination of fully emptying the bladder or urinary retention, weak inter intermittent stream, uh, suspicion of an atonic or a lazy bladder basically obstruction due to BPH or, you know, enlarged prostate, urinary problems after bladder, urethral and or prostate surgery. <clears throat> so I highlighted some components of the urodynamic study <clears throat> because there's a lot of components. So the uroflow is a simple uroflow. Most people know about the uroflow. It's a measurement of how much and how quickly you urinate rated in cc's per second. <clears throat> Post-void residual, the urine, of course, that is left behind after urination. So this is where we get into the urodynamic part of it, the systometrogram or the CV, CMG, otherwise known, the measurement of the pressure within the bladder. Bladder pressure is measured during fill. So when we fill the bladder, we start the systometrogram portion of it as well as the abdominal pressure, which is the estimation of the other pressures from the abdomen outside of the bladder from the rectal or vaginal pressure. And this is, these things are important um, to kind of know before I get into the nitty gritty, which is at the end. 
Um, detrusor pressure is the estimated measurement of passive and active forces of the bladder uh, obtained by subtracting. And this is going to be at the end, but the, the abdominal pressure from vesicle pressure. So vesicle pressure minus the abdominal pressure means the, um, the detrusor pressure. So leak rate pressure, um, this is measurement of the pressure at the time of leak. So when somebody coughs, sneeze, whatever, if they have stress incontinence, uh, we're measuring that pressure when they leak. Um, the EMG represents the pelvic floor muscles, electrical activity during filling and voiding. Um, we'll talk about that later. Pressure flow study. After this is basically the measurement of the rate at which the urine expelled from the bladder relative to the force of pressure of pushing urine out. So we're trying to look at that pressure when they void. So patient instructions for your dynamic study, we're trying, so not all offices do this. Um, we don't necessarily do this, but a lot of them do. So to stop the following medications three days prior. So these are anticholinergics that we, that some places recommend they stop three days prior to the urodynamic study because it can interfere. So that's the ditropan, the detrol, the enablex, oxytrol, Centura, the vesicular, merbetric, and gemtesa, which I still can't pronounce, it's pretty new. So it's gemtesa or gemtesa. Anyway. Um, complete a two to three day voiding diary and bring the appointment for, or bring to the appointment for review. And this is important, we'll talk about it later. Um, <clears throat> we want the patients to come to the urodynamic study with a full bladder, but of course we're doing that simple urflow prior. Um, no, no restrictions on diet or activity, and the test takes approximately 60 to 90 minutes. So this is the patient's voiding diary and history are re reviewed. So when the patient comes in, we look at the voiding diary, we look at their history. Um, I just put this example of our voiding diary. So what we want patients to do is put the time, you know, the time, what did you drink at the time? How much did you drink? Amount urinated, amount of leakage. And this is more for stress urinary incontinence. So drops, medium soaked, and activity. What were you doing when you leaked? Did you leak without even knowing it? Did you leak when you coughed, sneeze, things like that? So of course, like I said, when the patient arrives, they do the Uroflow. Um, we do put a straight cath in um, and check the post-void residual um, because we don't know how much they voided. The catheterized urine will be tested to rule out infection because you never want to do a urodynamic with an infection. Um, and so then we place a small bladder sensor into the bladder, which is the bladder pressure. And another sensor is inserted into the rectum, which is the abdominal pressure um, and the electrode, oops, sorry. And the electrodes will be applied around the anus and to record the pelvic muscle or the pelvic floor's electrical activity um, during the study. So after all of this is connected, basically the bladder abdominal sensors and the electrode electrodes, um, the patient will be asked to cough to check for placement. 
And then we start filling the bladder with water at a rate of 50 cc's per minute. But if the patient has a known history of overactive bladder or small bladder, we tend to try to fill them a little slower to prevent abnormal contractions. Um, during the study, the, op the operator will monitor for activities such as bladder contractions and leaks. And like I said, this is very basic. There's a lot of things we're looking for, but I don't want to overwhelm, uh, overwhelm anyone. Um, the patient may be asked to cough or Vesalva during the study to check for leakage because especially with um, SUI or stress incontinence, we want to have them cough or Vesalva and try to see if we can get them to leak because we want to know what that pressure is. Is it a mild leakage? Is it a large leakage? Is the pressure really high when they leak or low? And so... <clears throat> Then we're actually asking the patient um, when they first have the sensation to void, desire to void, and strong desire and the capacity. Because we want to know if they have a delayed sense to void or, you know, or, or they feel like they have to pee right away. So we want to know kind of those things. So when the patient reach, reaches capacity, they will be asked to void for the pressure flow component to the study. I'm gonna kind of go to the, so this is an example of a Euroflow, or excuse me, a Eurodynamic that we did probably, well, a little while ago, looks like in January. So this patient happens to be 82 years old, a male. He was complaining of your urinary uh, frequency <clears throat> and he has a history of incomplete emptying. So if you look at the beginning of the study on the top where it's yellow, we had the patient cough to check for placement, like we discussed. So um, it's hard to see, but when they cough, the pressure should be the same as the abdominal pressure. As the study goes on, you can see that the pressure is a little high for his bladder. That's the PVES on the top. The abdominal pressure is pretty quiet, but keep in mind that anytime a patient moves, sneezes, coughs, you know, raises a question, it's it's going to be a little bit off. So the abdominal pressure is pretty quiet throughout the study. The, um, the vesicle pressure is a little high, but what I want you to see is that at the end of the study, okay, number one, the patient has um, a delayed sense to void. So, and I'll show you the numbers after. So, but what I want you to see is that you see the yellow and then you see the blue down on the, the PDET, that's a vesicle pressure. That's a detrusive pressure. And so we know that the patient wasn't doing anything at the time of the void. So the void actually shows that he is, has some pressure. He's voiding pretty good. And then at, when he's kind of stopped a little bit, and then you can see the yellow rise and the blue rise. That's basically him pushing the void out right there. 
So um, my points are, is that, so he had the sense to void at 474. I highlighted these. Um, sense to void at 474. The desire to void was 483. His capacity where he felt like he really had to go was 506. So obviously he had a delayed sense to void. The urge, so let's see, five, uh, the void was 562. The total volume infused was 563 and he only peed 291 which means he had a residual of 272. So after that scenario the patient was diagnosed with um, a little bit of obstruction because his his um, pressure was a little high through the study. He had a little bit of acne of the bladder because he didn't feel like he had to pee for a while. Um, mild obstruction, incomplete, obviously incomplete bladder emptying. So um, number one, the patient needs to be informed of bladder irritants. When I looked at his bladder diary and he just drank coffee and Diet Coke all day, which I love Diet Coke and I drink it all day, but he needs to kind of back up on that. Um, so then we told him he needs to intermittently catheterize himself twice a day. Um, just try to help him so he doesn't have to get up at, you know, a lot at night and hopefully control it and make sure his creatinine or his kidney function doesn't get worse. And then he's on tamsulosin, so he's gonna continue tamsulosin, and then he's gonna consider prostate surgery to improve the obstruction. It may not help him from catheterizing because he does have somewhat of an atonic bladder, but it may give them a little bit more freedom. So after the urodynamic, we wanna make sure that the patients know they're gonna have maybe a little bit of bladder and rectal discomfort after a few hours. They may have a lot of your, you know, frequent urination and slight burning. Um, and that's for the first urinations afterwards, although I tell people probably the next day, they'll be fine. Um, blood in the urine, it's infrequent, but especially with those with enlarged prostates and difficulty catheterizing, they may have blood in the urine. Um, and then they should notify the provider or the office um, if they develop symptoms like pain, urgency, burning with urination, um, especially a couple of days, a few days after the test, because we want to rule out a UTI. Um, encourage the pa patient to drink a lot of water and instruct the patient to to schedule a follow-up appointment with the ordering provider to review the information. So the interpretation of the urodynamic study, it's, it's ultimately up to the provider, but the more, you know, they're not the ones doing the urodynamics. So the more information they can provide, the operator can invite, or excuse me, provide, <clears throat> the better um, the patient's uh, diagnosis and treatment options, because we can tell the providers what is going on during that, that urodynamics. And the more we can tell them, the more that they're gonna know because it's hard just from a piece of paper. Any questions? Um, if you could switch off of the share screen, I will read some questions that I have coming up. All right. So I will read this first one. 
from an anonymous attendee. I work at Sanford in Fargo, North Dakota. We have the same issue with BCG. Fargo has enough BCG, but outside of Sanford facilities, our outside are struggling to find enough BCG. I also think telephone triage would be an excellent topic. Um, so thank you for anonymous. I, those were some good points that we covered. Um, Olive Adriano just asked, I have just started using air charge, your dynamic, uh, the, the sensors. I'm having issues during the test where the P debt goes to the negative without any activity in paid. I'm not sure what that meant. Uh, during training, I was told to re-zero during the test. I've only zeroed at the beginning, at the start of the test. Any suggestions? That's a really good question. That's a great question. And I think that when you go out into the negatives, number one, you've got to check placement. You got to make sure it's in the bladder. You can adjust it. And believe it or not, I'm going to tell you a story real quick about what happened to us or to me that I put in the sensor too far into the bladder and actually went up the orifice of the ureter. And I actually caused hydro on a patient, hydronephrosis. So whenever, so what I would do with those negatives, I mean, I, I, every machine is different. So I'm able to re-zero only once in the beginning of the study, which I hate because sometimes you get that negative, um, but I would check your placement um, and eventually when the bladder fills, I think it ends up getting into that positive. So I wouldn't worry about it if it's like negative one, negative two, if it's less than that. Mm, what do you think, Vic? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and by the way, I've also catheterized the ureter <laughs> by, by mistake. That's horrible. And a, a word of warning, if you do urodynamics, whatever you do, always start that infusion very slowly, then increase the speed. <laughs> Because they uh, it doesn't take much pressure in the ureter to have them screaming. So, unfortunately, yeah. that's always been my habit to do that. But it's I, hard to believe. I mean, as hard as it with the cystoscope to place a to catheterize a ureter to do it blindly like that is amazing. Yep. But yeah, I've had the kind of what Olive's talking about too with the re-zero situation. Um, and sometimes it's you know they use air. Air can leak out. So sometimes there's an issue with the charging. It didn't charge properly. There was a connection that wasn't good either. So that can also have an effect on it. So I do have a couple more questions coming in. Um, Susie Swain had sent these in prior. I thought this was a good one to ask. What are some important questions to ask patients prior to your dynamic studies? I think that the most important is to um, ask them what their medications that they're on, especially GU medications. I definitely think that the most important is that voiding diary. That's going to, that's going to give you so much information because it's going to give you how much the patient can hold. Because sometimes when you do your dynamic, you know, they'll say, oh, I, you know, on the urodynamic, it'll, you know, they'll be like, I, I have to pee after 50 cc's, but on their, their voiding diary, it says they can hold 300. So you really have to di differentiate that. One of the, I, I kind of agree with the questions, you know, what medications are you on? Because 
it sets you up for things that you want to be more careful of, such as people that are on blood thinners. You know, when you're passing a, a, a larger cath, I always say that the most dangerous catheter to pass is the urodynamic catheter. And the smaller the catheter, the more dangerous it is. Um, a lot of people think just the opposite. You know, they're worried about a big catheter. You're not going to get into too much trouble with a 16, 18 French catheter because it'll just buckle if it hits an obstruction. But these smaller ones, they can, you know, kind of bury themselves into somebody's prostate and things like that. And nothing worse than doing a test and having somebody start bleeding because they're on blood thinner. So, and right. not that you can't do it with blood thinners, but I think that, you know, you want to be more cautious if you know they're on blood thinners. I have a question from Robert Bullingham and he's from Los Angeles. What do you find is the best to hold the pressure electrodes in place when inside the patient? Ooh. That's a great question because that's, you know, your dynamics, unfortunately, they, it, the hardest part, it's not exactly the study itself. It's actually trying to get everything to stay in place. And so what we do, um, I guess the question is, are you talking male, female? I guess I could talk about both. So the male, what we do usually is put a strip of tape over the head of the penis but like um, towards the tube and then squeeze it on the tube. And then we put another one around the head of the penis. So it stays right there. So there's kind of a hood that the patient could still pee through. Now, as far as the female, um, we put tape on the inner thigh. Um, we give it a little slack because when they're getting up to get on the commode, you wanna be able to give it a little slack. Um, but as much as you can, because females, especially with the small urethra, they fall out really fast or they get misplaced. So that's what we do. What do you about, what about you, Vic? Yeah, let me kind of, I'm going to, oops, get this drawing board up here for me to, to use. So this is my secret. This is your piece of tape. I rip it right down the center like that. And it's probably not a good, a, a, as good a picture, but so here's the male urethra. And what I do is I have the piece of tape coming like this and the ripped flaps that I produce off the side, I then wrap around the tube. That makes sense? So you've got the same thing you're kind of saying with two pieces of tape, I use one piece of tape and just split it down the center and then wrap it around the tube to hold it securely. And that's worked out pretty well for me. The other thing is when we talk about the female bladder, the simplest thing to do is put enough catheter inside their bladder so that it can curl around a little bit and not get urinated out because a little tiny bit in their bladder, some the amount of pressure that a female can produce easily will urinate out the, the catheter and then you're back starting all over again. And I think one of the really important parts and a lot of people don't want to do it, but I think it's important is shaving, get rid of the hair because the hair is going to cause a lot of problem. It's easier to tape. They stay in better. So if you're putting those uh, electrodes around the anus, 
and they have a lot of hair, shave it. It's going to make a world of difference. Yeah. Good question. Some good answers. Um, let's see. I have another one here. Let me just get it ready where I can read it. From Susie Swain. Is urinary, urine dipstick necessary prior to your 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 dynamic study of patient has an indwelling catheter? So that's a great question. Um, we still do your dynamics if they're asymptomatic. If they're asymptomatic, then we will still do it without antibiotics. There's no reason to put them on antibiotics. Um, I think the I think people think differently in other places, <clears throat> but for our group, we do not put them on antibiotics because they're colonized and there's no reason if there's not any um, symptoms. So would you do a dipstick prior to see whether they're... Oh, a dipstick? That was her no. question, yeah. Absolutely not. With a, a fully catheter, I would even check a urine period. Not at all, as long as they're not having any symptoms. There's no reason to check a urine. So I'm going to share with you a couple articles I did look up on. Um, and I think there's, as you kind of alluded, there's some mixed feelings on how you would approach this. So best practice policy statements for antibiotic prophylaxis in a non-index patient. So as you kind of said, we don't recommend um, dynamics as antibiotics after urodynamic testing. And it's been pretty well proven in, in the literature as not being necessary. Um, and I thought this one was kind of interesting in the annals of rehabilitation medicine was, should we delay your dynamic study when patient with spinal cord injury have asymptomatic pyuria? And that's kind of what we're talking about with that catheterized patient that, you know, they can have asymptomatic pyuria without, you know, uh, necessarily having them to cancel their, their treatment. I mean, their urodynamic study. And the conclusion showed no difference was found in the prevalence of post-urodynamic UTI based on the presence of pyuria in the pre-urodynamic urinalysis. Um, should be performed even in SCI cases of pre-urodynamic pyuria without increasing the prevalence of post-urodynamic UTI if prophylactic antibiotics are administered. So I think that both of those studies kind of give us the same conclusions that we had with a little bit of evidence behind it. And well, I already I pinned myself and I can't unpin myself. There we go. <laughs> Don't want to hog the screen. So yeah, that was a, a great question. Um, let's see here, Kimberly Flowers. I'm really interested in this topic, but my husband broke his ankle and had surgery yesterday. I have seen and or heard about five minutes of today's program. Oh, okay. Can I get access to your PowerPoint? Not sure I'll have time to view it later either. So I think probably the easiest answer to that is you've got access to the whole thing, the actual presentation. You can go to euronurse.com and it will show up probably sometime later tomorrow. Um, it's always being uh, simultaneously casted to YouTube live. So people could watch that as a choice, but you just can't ask any questions. And I do see there was a few viewers on our YouTube uh, channel. That 
it also records that and I'm able to then put that feed onto the euronurse.com site too. Or you can go to YouTube and follow that channel. Either one will work, uh, but it takes me about a day before YouTube lets me edit out some of the early stuff. So I like to condense it down to just the program. So, and sorry about your husband's ankle. Wow. Yeah. So any other questions, feel free to go ahead and put those in. I'm going to throw a question out there for you. You'd mentioned that that patient you gave the uh, example about, he had early uh, BPH. So what what's kind of your threshold on detrusor uh, pressure where you start calling it obstructed versus non-obstructed? That's a great question. <clears throat> So luckily our machine will spit out uh, a formulation where it'll say whether they're obstructed or not. In this particular patient, he was mildly obstructed. Mm -hmm. So I'm not quite sure, you're probably better at this than me, as far as the pressure at which they determine whether somebody's obstructed. I mean, I think this guy was definitely somewhat obstructed, obviously, because he could urinate all the way in complete mm -hmm. emptying and whatever. Um, and he was trying to push to void. So what's your thoughts? Yeah. So I think what you're talking about, and I probably have the name wrong, but I think it's the Griffin uh, uh, chart where they look at the pressure and flow and compare them. And right. based on that, it, it forms a, an angle and it'll show right. it's, what point it's, they consider it non-obstructive and obstructive. So right. kind of in, in, in our dealings, you know, anything up to about, or less than 12 cc's a second is considered a lower flow. So we're looking, yeah. the definition of BPH is high pressure, low flow. So if they have a lower flow rate, you know, five, six, seven cc's per second um, and higher pressure, generally over like 35, it's kind of a, a debated as you go to your dynamic meetings as to what that pressure should be. But certainly, you know, you start seeing 45, 50 centimeters of pressure over water, even though we use an air charge system, that is considered obstruction. So if they have high pressure, low flow, that's the definition of obstruction. Yeah, I think that the problem with this particular patient is the hard part is that even if he does have a prostate surgery, whether it's Urolift or TERP or whatever, he still has acne of the bladder. I mean, like he's not feeling like he has to pee until he's on, what, 500. Yeah. <clears throat> so the hard part is, yeah, he can probably pee better afterwards, but is he really going to empty his bladder? And that's why I think that the CIC was important for him because he may have to continue with that, you know, right. after yeah. the the surgery, if he does do it. So, yeah, so that, that's a good point. So that's when you're looking at the um, sensations of the bladder. So if somebody has a, what we call the delayed sensation, then we know that they probably have had blockage for long term and they've had what we call the trucer decompensation. They just don't really have the ability to squeeze as hard sometimes because their bladder has been overstretched. And you can right. see a low flow situation <clears throat> with low, low uh, pressure. And that's just the opposite of kind of what you saw where it was a higher pressure. So at least he still has a good detrusor there that can kind of push you, but there is some blockage. So yeah, maybe on intermittent cath, maybe somebody who, could have a procedure done to help open it up and get that decompensated bladder to compensate a little bit better. Um, right. Certainly the sensation was, was uh, an issue too, because 
that's the ones you worry about. And we talked about what questions, you know, that's a history of diabetes is another yeah. issue or spinal cord injury, you know, and it doesn't necessarily mean the guy who came in in a wheelchair because uh, right. I, I had a uh, spinal surgery done years back on my thoracic spine and never really considered myself spinal cord injury till I saw a new, a new neurologist. Cause my other guy retired who said, well, of course you've got that problem. You've got spinal cord injury. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I guess I do. So any you yeah. know, thing that can cause issues can cause some of those bladder issues. So, so I want to throw this out there as far as like, um, little things that you say to patients when you're trying to explain things. So one of the things that I tell people that have an atonic bladder or are in your re urinary retention, it's like your bladder is stretched out like a balloon and it never really goes back down to its normal shape. And that's, they get that, you know? So I'd be curious to see what other people say about, you know, little things they say to patients that make sense to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, we have a question here. Any suggestions if the patient can't urinate after the test with sensors in place, do you take them out? That that's like the, the worst thing that you can have happen, right? You know what? I think people get in their minds that they're not able to urinate around the sensor. And I think it's just all in their head. But at some point, if they can't pee, we just end up taking them out. I mean, yeah. you can't sit there for an hour. So, and then you probably should do a Euroflow. You could still do a Euroflow afterwards. Yeah. It's not necessarily the pressure flow, but take the sensor out and actually have them pee as a Euroflow. There is a, a device too out now, Some people, they just freak out because they got some tube in their, their yeah. urethra. Um, there's a thing called the Eurocuff. I don't know if you're familiar with that one or not. Oh, I am, but it's, no, we it's, haven't done it. I, I call it the poor man's urodynamics test <laughs> because it doesn't compensate for abdominal pressure. So if they're sitting there pushing right. with their gut, you don't know. Uh, but it's, it's take, take that out of the equation. It is very non-invasive. All it is a little pressure, kind of like a, a blood pressure cuff around their, it's Donald yeah. on, on their penis. And it basically, when they start urinating, will cut off the flow. And then that gives them a flow rate and a measurement of indirectly of pressure. And it kind of can give an indication whether they have a blockage or not without having to catheterize somebody. Because the, one of the things I, I, I learned early on in my, my career is, is how people react to things you'll never be able to figure out. The big burly truck driver comes in and he'll pass out because you catheterized him just out of a vasovagal response. Right. So I always, uh, I'm always really careful. I, I always have my men do their voiding test standing so that they, uh, um, I can kind of get the best results. There's a lot of good studies that show men have a better result standing than sitting. But if they're feeling a little queasy or something, then by all means, have them sit down. Um, so I guess my question to you, Vic, is that, so do you have like for your urodynamics, do you have patients stand or sit? For males stand. Males. Oh, you yeah. do. So I you do. don't come out with a complete mess? Um, I have a trick. <laughs> Here go here I go back to my drawing board. <laughs> this one I should should patent. 
the uh the the bottle that you get what's that that one liter bottle that you get that the water comes in i can't remember what those are called sterile water comes in anyway those bottles almost every office has those i go and i cut this end off and use it like a funnel so it's got that little area where the cap would be and then i take silk tape and i put it around the edge so that it's not a sharp edge but if you get scissors cut that off you just created a very inexpensive funnel and i also have seen um or i've tried it some of the gas stations used to sell these funnels for putting oil in your car and they're made out of paper and they're super cheap. I, I picked up some of those for patients. And so I have them aim their penis through that. Now there's a question, does that actually deflect or slow down the flow of urine? And I, I don't think so. I think it doesn't that's interfere. That's a great idea. And, and that's spraying all over the office. That's a great idea. Worth its weight in gold. Well, see, that's why people come here to get great ideas, right? Yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> but yeah, oh, I, I, I uh, somewhere I, I did a talk and I took, I had a patient give me permission to take a picture of him from the side so you couldn't see who he was using it. And it, it's, it's really impressive when you see how well it works. So I strongly recommend that. That is a great idea. The, the other thing I would say about the, you know, the patient who can't pee, I mean, there's some people that can't pee when they've got, an audience and yeah. even, you know, one person in there in the office, in the office doing your dynamics is bad enough. Some people have multiple people in the office. If there's a physician that's watching and all this observing is, is enough to make most, uh, some people not able to urinate for sure. So the uh, one thing I always do is if I feel that I'm comfortable with the patients, not, you know, that the least bit queasy and not going to pass out on me is I say, I'll go ahead and step out. Just take your time, relax, and try to go. And I would say about 80% of the time, they're successful at urinating. So sometimes it's just having a person there watching. It's just too much to mentally grasp. Yeah, I always walk out. Privacy, even for, that helps. Yeah, I always walk out for them to pee, of course, if they're not having any um, disease spells or anything. But even with voiding trials, like um, I'll always walk out. And yeah. I'll even say that, you know, if you want to go into the bathroom, it feels more comfortable. I still want to see what comes out. And mm -hmm. I, even if they want to just go into the bathroom and pee, um, I can do a residual scan with an ultrasound afterwards. I don't have to. So if they're more comfortable doing that, I'll do that too, because they get nervous, you know? Yeah. And I think that's a good point. You know, as, as a practitioner, we, we want the best test possible. So we're invested in having them being able to give us results. <clears throat> but it's not always going to work that way. So, you know, there's, you're, you're dealing with people and people are funny creatures. So you have to be, you know, kind of comfortable enough when you're doing these to say, let's get the best, the most information I can about the patient, which like you said, maybe, Hey, go to the bathroom. Let me get a post void residual and just see what that was. Um, right. Do you catheterize your patients before you put in the, the, your dynamic tube? I do. So, um, yeah, we always do. So what we do is when they come in, um, we'll have them pee and check their urine when they come in, but then we'll, we'll also catheter, uh, catheterize them to get the post-void residual. We actually just recently had a patient a couple days ago 
that the when she peed, um, we always checked that urine, but it was kind of non-conclusive and she was having kind of not really, I mean, she was having like vague symptoms. Mm-hmm. So we decided to catheter and get a urine sample, get her actually true postvoid, and then we checked her sterile sample. So the best way to get obviously the the UA is from the catheterization. Mm-hmm. But I we always have them pee first just because if they're blatantly infected, we're not going to do the procedure, obviously. It's just going to give you all these false results. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely a good point. Um, yeah. we, we do the same thing. We always catheter, you know, have them urinate, check a urine sample just to make sure they're not grossly contaminated. Somebody who's not wearing a catheter and has a, an active urinary tract infection, we're going to treat then do the urodynamics. Because right. obviously overreactive bladder can be caused from a UTI. So you don't want to misdiagnose right. that. And right. then secondarily, we catheterize to get a post-void residual in a more natural setting. And then when they go and they void, such as the, the patient that you showed the example of, he had a 200 and something CC residual. Mm-hmm. What was his pre-residual? And I always report that because I think it validates your test. So if the patient voiding with just going to the bathroom left, 200 cc's behind and then during my test left 200 cc's behind it's a pretty good it's valid yeah Yeah. it's at least an extra validation step that i think is worth having um the other thing is i think when you place a catheter you get a feel for um especially in male patients you know the urethra is there any kind of tricky curves corners turns things that you're gonna encounter um early on the TDOC catheter, that's the air charge catheter that Olive had alluded to starting to use, only came in a straight catheter. And wow. I actually, the, it was invented by a, a, a urogyne who was doing urodynamics in his office and got tired of all the issues you had with water urodynamics. And for those of you that do urodynamics and did water, you know what I'm talking about. But the air charge kind of took that away because it's much more reliable. But it only came in a straight. And for a man, sometimes getting a straight catheter is not going to work. You need a coude. And so I really talked to this guy and said, hey, you know, you need to create a coude catheter. And so he said, okay, he says, would you mind testing some? And I'm like, send them. So he sent uh, some of the prototypes to my office. And I was able to go and give him feedback. And they kind of came up with, I thought it's a pretty good catheter. To the point that most of the time, if I had a male patient, I'm using that over a straight. But definitely, if I had trouble putting in a, a straight in regular um, straight cath, I will. Yeah, I try the straight cath usually first. And then if we can't, then we'll do the coude. The coude, yeah. Yeah. Do we have a comment from Northern California? The tips and tricks are great. So kudos to you there. Tips Good. and tricks coming out good Um, we got lots of tricks so keep asking i mean the hardest like i said the hardest thing is the placement of these catheters and the artifact the artifact through your dynamic study is awful you're trying to figure out what is going on when their abdominal pressure goes up their bladder pressure goes up you know are they coughing are they sneezing are they pushing are they moving are they you know we try to keep the patients as calm as possible that's the key Tell them to put their, don't have them cross their legs, don't have them cross their arms, have them in a relaxed position is the best test. Of course, it's hard with some of the elderly, elderly, yeah. but the best you can do. 
and sometimes knowing that history too, pulmonary uh, patient, patients that have pulmonary problems where they're doing a lot of heavy breathing or right. know, a diaph diaphragm assisting, they're going to have yeah. these wavy patterns with every breath they take. Yeah. And sometimes obesity can cause that to be more prominent. Uh, they have a question here. What type of your dynamic machine do you use? Any alternatives to the outrageously expensive T-Docs, which I won't argue. Yeah, they let's are take the expensive. first question though. What, what your dynamic machine do you use? Oh, so we use a Labory. Um, it's probably the one we currently have is about five years old, but we're getting a newer one, which is probably works, but it's still a T-Doc. So of mm -hmm. course the T docs, I mean those catheters are super expensive. I think they're five something for the straight, and for coup days it's like even more. I mean, no matter how you look at it, it's, it's expensive. The only problem I have with the machine that we have now, and I don't know if anybody can attest to this, but the the machine we have now makes you um, scan a barcode on. Mm -hmm the catheter package. And so if something doesn't work right, you have to redo it. We have to grab a new catheter because you can't rescan a new barcode. And I think it's just their way of making more money, to be quite honest. I've never seen that before, but that's so yeah. I don't know anybody else's comments on that. Uh, it could be they're concerned that because of the expense, people are soaking them and reusing them. Ew. What? I that's the only thing I could guess why you have I, this. What? To that, Do people that, actually that, reuse them? You don't know what stuff goes on. Oh, anymore. my God. I'm not Sorry. saying we do. I don't promote okay, it. No, I don't. <laughs> but, but I do know what happens in the real world. And there are oh, some, some okay. offices that reuse. I mean, let's face facts. Prior to 2000 and something, when the FDA kind of came down and said that, you know, intermittent cats cannot be reused. They're single-use items, even though it said it on the box. Most people were were re, you know soaking them in vinegar or all sorts of things that kind of reuse them, and they weren't buying new catheters because the government didn't pay for more than like eight catheters. Then they suddenly said, "Well, single-use. Now we have to pay for enough catheters to make that work." So that's when the uh, single-use really became popular. Wow, interesting. Alter alternatives. Oh. Your dynamic machines. I've used a Bard machine that came out when it used to be uh, like the sensors were um, fiber optic pressure sensors. Those those were a real trip. I used a second machine that I love and I can't think of the name of it right now. But nowadays, there's only a couple of choices in your dynamics: Labory and um, Prometheus. Yeah. I don't know any other companies out there? I mean, if the Somebody else has a, a a note. Please let me know. But it's uh, <laughs> those are the only two I can think of. Labory kind of cornered that market. They just they bought yeah. everybody else out. Now people may want to know that with Labory equipment, and I hope no Labory person is going to listen to this. But if you go through SRS Medical, um, you can get those catheters cheaper than going through Labory. So all the equipment and stuff, and that's just my experience, that obviously Lavery is going to want you to buy Lavery items. But if you go through SRS Medical, they're cheaper. 
And I think if you're part of one of these uh, big buying groups too, some of those you can look at for buying. Um, yeah. I, there are alternatives. I think the the water charge catheters are still available, you know, the water sensors, but boy, I'll tell you what, it's it's worth the price, even they, although they are expensive to have the, the T-Docs. And yeah. John Lynn just uh, sent a, a information in here and I think he's kind of on the same place that we are. It's a total scam by Lavery. And so <laughs> could be, could be. Never heard of re cath reuse. Um, yeah, I, I wish I could. I wish I could tell you. I did research for. Um, I was one of the uh, authors with the Suna and uh, AUA on prostate uh, uh, prostate biopsy um, infections, and we kind of looked at the what was being done and some of the the poorly reprocessing of equipment that was taking place that led to pseudomonas infections, etc. So trust me, it, it's out there. I wish it yeah. wasn't. I don't don't advocate it. And I do agree, reuse by the same patient with intermittent catheter is is reasonable. I I, I think it's yeah. Yeah. Makes I mean I can tell you that we've taught that for years and never had right. I, I have patients that you know had the same catheter and they come in with this ugly looking thing and they, they still don't have an infection, but they, you know, they've been managing with it. So, and here somebody just did say Euro GPO. That's the one I was trying to think of because we're part of that buying group to save money. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you've got, to, if you're buying it right from Labrie, uh, yeah, you're probably paying premium for it. And we were even talking about the printer paper for our Euroflow machines from Labrie. They were charging like $42 for one roll. Wow. But you buy it outside of that. It's like, I think it was like maybe $51 for what you get like four or five rolls. I mean, it's yeah. incredible. Have you experienced any shortages on any of that equipment? Uh, I haven't seen So far anything. not. Yeah. No. I think your dynamics is a small enough niche that there's probably enough equipment out there still being made, but it's everything else. I just got a notice from the company that makes um, the Eurojets, the oh. lidocaine jelly, that because of the lidocaine uh, shortage, they're running short on their supplies too. So there yeah. may be a shortage of those. Of the yeah, we've been able to get it so far, but I've heard of that. So I yeah. kind of over-ordered lidocaine. So I have an overabundance just because I knew that was coming. So. And you know, and that's, I think part of the problem and that's kind of human nature. When you hear about this, what do you do? You stack up and yeah, in big offices for sure. They don't want to run out of any of this stuff. So they really stack up and that right. starts to cause, I mean, that helps make the shortage. So, well, while this has really been a great discussion, I think we're getting pretty close to the end of our hour here. If there's any more questions from the audience, feel free to send those. If not, um, I do want to alert you to um, the after party. So what's the after party? Um, if you just want to hang out and just talk about some of the things that we were talking and discussing or ask questions that you want to be able to do live, I am going to open a Zoom meeting after this. I did send a link with the link that you got for today's meeting. Um, directly to that. So as soon as we close, I'll open that up. Feel free to come and join us and you can have your, you can be on live and talk to us and everything. Um, 
we're trying this out to see if it'd be fun. It's totally, uh, you know, just a, a chit chat type session. We're not going to be asking questions or anything like that, but um, we're there to, to ask us if you got some questions or concerns that you didn't get answered today or just want to talk about other things. Also, please feel free to fill out the survey that I hope comes up. A lot of this stuff we're learning as we go. New, new tricks every time we try it, we'll get a little bit better. So we hope to keep continue this. As I said, um, next week we do have uh, Andrea giving a talk on telephone triage. Looking forward to that. So we'll tune in for that. Uh, Fran Foley, hey, how are you doing, Fran? Just sent a question here or actually a comment. Instead of Eurojet, go to Glido. Less expensive, no sharps or glass. And, and that's, it's, I'm showing my age because I did, I did say Eurojet because I used yeah. Eurojet for years, but I've had two we Eurojets. We do Glido. I've had two Eurojets in my career crack and explode in my hand. Thankfully, because I had gloves on, they didn't cut me, but. Uh, here's another point. here's another option that we used to do because we were low. You can actually inject 2% lidocaine without epi into a gel, which they have bags of gel. Mix it up and pull it up into a slip tip syringe. Yep. And you can use those. We did that all the time when we had a shortage or we couldn't get it. Yeah. Yeah. Th those bags, I think, have disappeared. There was... Oh, some really? issues with well, there was some lawsuits that it, uh, came because of the companies that were mixing these things. These mixing houses were not following all the strict protocols that are necessary to provide guaranteed oh. safety, and there was a some, and so a lot of them quit doing that. So we also stopped doing lidocaine um, jelly on females, and I hate to say that, but they have a short urethra. It's not going to make a difference. We just stopped doing it on females. We, we only use it on males now. <laughs> so I got a couple last comments before we switch over. Uh, John Lynn said, great job, John. Thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, Fran Foley, who now let me know she's from Worcester, Massachusetts. Oh, God, you have Massachusetts. Massachusetts? <laughs> Sorry, murdered that one. That's why I live in Indiana. <laughs> Fran did make the point. They don't roll off the operating room table. Exactly. <laughs> All right, folks, I'm going to end the meeting. It was great to see you or talking to everyone. And we'll uh, have another great discussion next week and join us for the after party. 